0: So, one of the advantages of the summer is there are just a lot more croissants to go around. So, um, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to lose weight here, this is a bit of a struggle, I think, when there are this many pastries around. So, um, so during uh, the summer, we're just doing some different sort of standalone messages. So, we're not in a, in a series. We'll get into a series back in September. But, um, so, I'm going to speak this today just add us speak out of the Psalms, and I want to speak out Psalm 121. So, if you've got a Bible... Not want to turn to that. If not, it's going to come up on the screen. So you'll be able to read the text there. So um, if you know the Bible, all, if you're used to church, this may seem, this is probably quite a familiar psalm. You probably have read this or you've heard people read it. And um, <clears throat> it's quite short. So this is what it says. I lift up. Uh, you can tell this person wasn't writing in the Netherlands. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Okay. I lift my eyes to the mountains. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Okay? I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it again. Because sometimes you read it, you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. And then he's like, and let's, let's read it again. See if you can really, like, picture the passage, if you like. So this is the psalmist. And he, he makes a statement, and then he asks a question. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. That's quite a statement. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day. Nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm he will watch over your life the Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore so I want to do something a little bit unusual today I want to if you like kind of look at this psalm but I'm kind of slightly doing it in reverse okay um uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to speak backwards or anything like that. Were, growing up as a kid in the UK, there was a program called The Adventure Game where there was a certain character in that TV program who spoke backwards. I don't know if anybody ever heard of that program. He would say things like nod rap, which means pardon. So if you say pardon, but you and, he, and So I learnt certain words backwards. So very good. Backwards in English is doogie rev, which is actually quite a good name. So, but Sarah, my wife, for those of you who know Sarah, learnt an entirely new language that her and her friends made up at school. It's the most bizarre thing, and she can still speak it, and I have no idea what on earth is going She's tried to teach it to me, and I still have no idea what's going on. But anyway, we're not going to try and do it backwards in that sense, but I want us to build it from the ground up. I want us to look at the kind of psalms, the bulk of the psalm, and I want them to reverse back to the start of the psalm, as it were. Because when you look through the psalm and you read it through and you really look at it, what you, obviously what you see is the majority of this psalm is all about who God is. Okay? It's mostly about him, not about us. It's about who he is, what he will do. It's about his existence. It's about his proximity. It's about his attentiveness. So it's interesting, five times in the psalm, uh, the psalmist is describing God as watching us. Now, obviously, in some situations, people watching you can feel a bit creepy But this is not a kind of, this is an attentive, caring, watching. It's just five times. It's about God's care. It says he will not let your foot slip. It says he is your shade. Obviously, in a very hot country, shade is very important. I know that's not the weather that we're experiencing right now. Uh, But when it's hot, shade is important. He's your shade. You will be kept from harm. It's all about his commitment to you and to me. Now... Just so we're clear and we've said this lots of times in this church you know the bible is not teaching that we don't go through difficult times okay in fact the bible is very clear that we go through seasons of suffering seasons of storms in fact if you're a christian in fact suffering at times seems to increase rather than decrease so we're not into some kind of like unreal thing where you know become a christian come to jesus and and there'll never be anything bad that happens in your life that's just not reality we live in a broken world there is opposition suffering is built into the dna of creation sadly um, otherwise the psalmist would not be asking the question where's my help coming from right because <laughs> you don't need help if everything is sorted but he's asking the question so clearly the psalmist is not saying there's never anything bad that happens even though he describes like there'll be no harm to you so he says that but he's not saying there's never a storm we know there's storms jesus tells the story at the end of the sermon on the mount doesn't he He says he does this incredible teaching on this is what life in the kingdom looks like. And then he tells a story about two men who build houses. The houses are a picture of our lives. Basically saying everybody builds a life. Everybody. All the choices, all the decisions we make and we don't make are all part of building a life. And interestingly, in the story, they both build houses. They both build lives. And a storm comes. And the storm comes to both houses the difference between the houses is not that the storm comes to one and not the other the only difference is who and what it is built on so the bible is not into unreality we're not into unreality challenges come okay but at the same time whilst that's true the psalmist is clearly saying to us something that is meant to be very comforting if you're like although we're not into unreality there is a kingdom reality that he does want us to get and does want us to grasp. Um, so that even when you are in a stormy season, and I don't know, for different ones of us in the room, this season might feel like, Fahe described, everything feels like it's good and flourishing, or it may feel like, do you know what, it just feels like there's a bit of a headwind, If ever cycled into a headwind in the Netherlands? You know what that's like, right? That happens in the UK as well. Or it might feel like it's more than a headwind, it feels like a storm, right? But whatever season you're in, the psalmist is saying, you're not abandoned. You are held. You are not uncared for. John Ortberg has a phrase where he says, God is closer than you think. That God is closer than you and I can possibly imagine. And if you were to attach an emotion to this psalm, I wonder what emotion you would attach to it. I would say this psalm is about confidence or another word you could use for that, a more Bible word, is faith, but confidence that God is exactly who he says he is and he's absolutely committed to you and I. Now, I'm a, I'm a big rugby fan. Anybody else? Bill, I know you like rugby. Anybody else like rugby? A bit of rugby? Okay. Not many of us. Okay. <laughs> Depending on the country we're from. Okay. Well, in rugby, it tends to be 15 players against 15 players. Our daughter plays rugby for a, a girls' team at university, so it's not just guys who play it, but traditionally it's a kind of male sport, which fortunately in our is not the case. And, but it's a pretty confrontational sport, okay? Off the pitch, it's very friendly. On the pitch, it's not so friendly. And then 20 years ago, England won the World Cup. It's the only time in my lifetime I can think of England winning anything at any kind of big sporting occasion, pretty much. Well, 20 years ago, they won the Rugby World Cup, and they had a captain at the time, this guy called Martin Johnson, and he was a massive beast of a guy. In fact, he was born in New Zealand, but we don't tell anybody that, because mm-hmm. he was playing for England, so we pretend he's English. And, um, and I remember that they were discussing like, their team. They had this team who were like, full of great athletes, full of great rugby players. They had lost some key games, but learned how to win. They could win ugly, you know. They, and it was full of leaders. And I remember them interviewing one of the other players, and they were talking about Martin Johnson, their captain. And he says, basically, you turn up at the dressing room before game, and you look around the room, he said, and i would see Martin Johnson, and i would think, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> basically, because I'd look around, I'd see this guy, and I think, do you know what? Even if it gets ugly, the captain is going to be in the thick of it. It's going to be a good day, because he's going to be fighting for me. And that guy is an absolute beast. Well, Romans 8 has a phrase that we, if you know Romans at all, you'll probably know Romans 8 because Romans 8 is like the chapter that we all probably know the best out of Romans. And in Romans 8, there are certain key verses that we tend to know out of Romans 8. And one of the verses that we tend to know in Romans 8 is the verse where Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up, surely will he not give us all things. And what he's saying is, we have a captain that if you look around the room and you look around your life, even if things get a bit ugly, it's going to be a good day in the end. In the end, he's going to be fighting for me in the thick of it because he's for me. He's on, he's on my, or I'm on his team, yeah? I have a captain that if I look around the room, he's got my back, and when it gets ugly, he's right in there with me. It's about confidence. And this psalm is full of confidence. Confidence rather than fear. That's not to say we don't experience fear. It's not to say we don't experience anxiety. Jesus keeps saying, don't be fearful. He says that because he knows that we experience it. But he doesn't want fear and anxiety to be the thing that wins the day in terms of our experience of life. What is the dominant emotion that's going to win the day when it comes to that anxiety or that concern? Well, for the psalmist in 121, what he's saying is, I need help. There's a degree of anxiety now look there's confidence coming because he sees one and the dominant experience for him is confidence there is one who has totally got my back now if that's true the question is why is that not always my experience why don't i always feel confident why doesn't every day feel like oh, i feel completely secure i feel completely at peace you know, I, I, I'm totally clear that God is for me, not against me. He's absolutely with me. Or put it more positively, how do I live in that kind of confidence? If I read that kind of psalm, how do I live in Psalm 121? Well, according to the psalmist, one of the keys, possibly the key, but certainly one of the keys, is it's dependent on where we look. Yeah? Where I look... What I look at, who I look to, is one of the keys of living with confidence or faith rather than living dominated by fear and anxiety. Yeah? Because it's possible for this to be true, but for me not to really experience it. Yeah? Just because it's true doesn't mean I live in the good of it. The sun might be out, but I still might be standing in the shadows, right? But if the psalmist is saying something true, he's, he's saying something that I can either access or not. And it seems to be, for the psalmist, one of the keys to accessing the truth. that He then says, he watches you. He's watching you. He's watching you. He won't let you f- fall. He's not slumbering or sleeping. He'll watch over you. No harm. For me to access that sense of confidence, he's saying, one of the keys is where you look. Who am I looking at? Who am I looking to? Where will I look? Now, most of you know, Sarah and I and the kids moved to the Netherlands almost two years ago. Not quite two years, but almost two years ago. And if you move from a country like the UK to the Netherlands, one of the things that you discover, particularly when they cross the road, is you have to look in every direction. Anybody else experience this, moving to the Netherlands? It's like... It's like, you know, if you're born and bred here, it's completely natural to you, okay? And I am getting there. I kind of pretty much intuitively now look the right way and can sense bikes. But when you first move in, it's like, okay, everybody's coming from a different direction to what I'm used to back in the UK. And now there are bikes. So they, and they could be on that side or they could be this side. I'm not sure they're coming from this way or that way. But anyway, there are bikes. Some of them are e-bikes because they're really, and that very old person is traveling very fast. So I need to really check that So they're coming there. And now there are bikes and there are cars. And they're coming from the right rather than the left. So I'm looking... So you spend... British people, when they move to the Netherlands, are like this all the time. And like this. And you're just constantly... But not only are there bikes and cars and e-bikes with old people who go very fast, but there are trams as well. And the trams seem to go on the roads with the cars sometimes, but not always. So there are trams and cars and bikes all going in different directions. And so you spend your whole time going, I'm just looking all <laughs> over the place, wondering, even when you step into the road, I'm still wondering, is this safe? Am I about to get mown down by that lady? I don't know. You know, and you're looking. Anybody else, kind of, can anybody else relate to this experience? Okay, you're looking all over, multiple places, multiple times, all the time. And where we look counts, right? It counts in real life, in normal life. Where we look matters. And it seems to me there's a principle in the Bible when it comes to life, living with God, knowing God, spiritual growth, which where we look has a big impact on the kind of life we grow into. In fact, I would say there's a biblical principle in the the Bible, which is that what we behold, we become. What we look at, what we consider, what we stare at has a huge impact on the person we become. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, it says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I read it again. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, so I'm considering, I'm staring, I'm gazing at something of who Jesus is, are, whilst I do that, being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Something about who we behold hugely impacts who we become. And for the psalmist... The key to standing in the confidence that he then expresses is where he looks. Where does he look? I lift my eyes okay Where you look has a huge impact on what you experience. So last summer, most of you many of you will know that um, <clears throat> we went through a bit of a difficult patch with Sarah had developed an issue with her eye, and suddenly her vision in one of our eyes went pretty pretty weird it kind of like deteriorated very fast we went to an optician they were like pretty concerned they sent us straight off to a specialist and we had that kind of like week of waiting for an appointment people on the phone making very concerned noises you know well it could be something you know or it could be something really serious you know and it's like ooh, and you're in that kind of like gap of not knowing and the possibility of like huge kind of like repercussions and that's now, as it is, it turned out to be something serious, but not something life-threatening, which was great. Okay, And they managed to do an operation and all sorts of stuff. About four weeks after that operation, we went to the UK. We kind of lost our holiday, but we found you know, someone was good enough to lend us their house. We were on our way to staying in this house, and Sarah started to develop a bit of a pain in her eye again. She was a bit concerned about it. She goes, "My vision? I'm not sure. So uh, some of you have met Terry and Wendy Virgo, who have been through here. Terry preached in the Teveld's front room, if you remember. And, you know, they're like founding figures of the kind of family of churches that our church is ultimately a part of, called Frontiers. And so they had invited us to their house at any point we wanted to. So we were near them. So we stopped by to say hello. We sent them a message. said, yeah, we're here. Stop in. So we ended up stopping in our house to say hello, which felt a bit surreal. And then basically Sarah rings a hospital in Brighton and says, you can come and see us tomorrow and we'll check your eye out. So they say, well, stay with us, stay the night with us. So we ended up staying the night with Terry and Wendy Virgo, who, and you know, we didn't anticipate doing this at all, but they are significant figures around the world in terms of as a Bible teacher and all these kind of things. And so we spent the evening with them, which was very nice. In the morning we pray with them and they, that was great. And then we went on our way and I remember feeling like one of the things which stuck with me having had almost 24 hours in their house was just their absolute sense of confidence that God is exactly who he says he is. And that total sense of faith that God will follow through on what he promises. No unreality, no weirdness, but just absolutely clear. And I'm like, how, where do where they get that? Where does he get that from? There was just something that he could just tell the temperature was much higher in their house than in my own life. Like in terms of faith. Like the watermark was higher. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm like, where does he get that from? Well, I think it's because of where he looks. I know, I know that he spends just time, hours reading, praying, being with God, where he looks, because what we behold, we become. Where does that help come from? It comes from beholding. Now, what's really interesting is this, right? The psalmist talks again and again and again about the fact that God is watching you like I said five times in this psalm I've never really quite seen it before five times he says he's watching you (laughs) he's watching you and he says it five times but what's interesting is he only becomes aware of it by watching God how does he become aware that God is you know close attentive engaged watching me and you how does the psalmist become aware of it again he becomes aware of it by looking and lifting his eyes it's like this kind of kingdom staring competition you know i have to look to him and then i discover he's looking at me now it sounds simple doesn't it okay so one of the keys is i need to lift my eyes and look to him it sounds so simple and when you write it on a piece of paper or on a computer it feels simple but the truth is we find it very hard and i think one of the reasons we find it hard to lift our gaze to him is because our gaze is consumed often elsewhere yeah, I'm consumed with the things that concern me. Whatever those things are, and they may be absolutely very understandable. How do I manage to pull my gaze away from myself and my concerns and lift my eyes? Because if the key to the passage is that he is who he says he is, he is concerned and attentive. If for me to do that, I need to lift my eyes. Well, how do I lift my eyes? How do I actually do that? Because... We could all go, hey, we're going to do that this week. But how do I do that? What, what is it that causes me to take my eyes off myself for a moment and look at him? Well, how does the psalmist do it? I think the psalmist does it by this. He's, he, he acknowledges and he asks it any question. He says, where does my help come from? Okay. We will look to someone else. Whoever that person is only when we realize that we don't have all the answers right if I think I have all the answers then I will spend all my time because I am a solution oriented kind of person I will spend all my time fixating on how do I fix this right I will just go around it and go around it go around it now there's some good things about that because I can find some solutions sometimes Mm -hmm. but if I think I have the key to all the issues in my life I will keep looking at my stuff all the time because I think the longer I look at this, the more I might be able to solve it. The psalmist, I think, has come to the realization, I don't have all the answers to my life. Where does my help come from? He's not going to ask that question if he thinks it all comes from him. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. So, one of the keys to be able to lift our eyes is to realize and acknowledge we don't have all the solutions to our life. In fact, we were never meant to have all the solutions to our life. A bit like what Vahe prayed and shared earlier, sometimes we go through difficult stuff because God is reminding us, you don't have all the answers. (laughs) You're never meant to live on your own independent lives in that way. About, um, I don't know how many years ago now, probably about five or six years ago, Sarah and our kids, we have four kids, we did a cycle tour we 'd done a couple of cycle tours in the Netherlands, which were all great and flat, and then we, tried to, we decided to push it a little bit further and we decided to do one in Germany, okay, which was fun, mostly there are times when Sarah looked at me and went, "What kind of route have you taken us on but anyway, so it was a little bit more challenging in Germany, a bit more hilly, a bit longer all that things. But we had one particular day, and I think I might have told this story to one or two before, so apologies if you 've heard this but We had one particular day right at the end of this we were cycling we were carrying tents with us we were doing the whole thing right with four kids I don't know how old Ben was probably about eight so we had like you know our eldest was probably 15 16 so you know this was like not exactly they're not all teenagers towards the the penultimate day we get to this scenario where we look at the weather forecast and there is serious storms coming in okay and we're thinking this is not this is not going to go well. <laughs> okay, we we're, we're going to our campsite and it's going to be underwater. It's getting into the mountains near Füssen and I'm thinking this is this is not good. We need to find alternative places to stay. And at lunchtime on that day the rain came and it was like torrential. Okay. So our kids are looking at us like why are we cycling in Germany? Well, you, you you guys are nuts. Why aren't we on a beach somewhere in Greece or something, you know? Or in a house. How about a house somewhere but you're cycling making a cycle through Germany. So anyway, so we're there, and we're like, what are we going to do? Because this is just absolutely not going to work. We're all going to get completely soaked. Our tents are not going to be able to cope. This is going to be awful. So we're ringing places, trying to find, is there somewhere we can stay? There's nowhere to stay. Nothing, nothing. It was like, it was like I, have no, I have no solution. And um, Sarah goes, I'm going to go to the supermarket with some of the kids. So she took them off. right? <laughs> and I'm left there with our eldest trying to fix his puncture, because... That was great. He's now got a punch as well. So this is a great holiday, actually. Um, anyway, she goes to the supermarket with three of our kids, and she's in the supermarket, and she, she, feels like she feels this prompting from God. Why don't you go and ask that couple over there? So you know what Sarah's like. She's like, okay. She's much braver than I am. She literally feels the Holy Spirit say, go and ask that couple. So she goes up to this couple in the car park and says, you know, Introduce yourself, I'm really sorry to trouble you, blah, 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 but do you know anywhere in this area where, where there's, a, like that, there's a hostel or any accommodation? I think he turns out to be Zimbabwean and she's South African, I think, or the other way around, I can't remember. So apparently this couple look at each other and go, uh, no, and they're kind of chatting with her. And then they kind of say, but, well, we've got a garden. You can camp in our garden if you want. Yeah. Okay, okay, so anyway. They then go into the supermarket and they have a little bit more of a chat. That, by that point, the offer has moved from, from the garden to a basement. We have a basement and you can all sleep in our basement. So if you know anything about younger kids or teenagers, they are not gonna swallow the idea of sleeping in some stranger's basement. They're like, you're nuts. But anyway, Sarah rings me and goes, um, so I've met this couple <laughs> and they've said we can stay in the basement. What the kids like, we can't stay in the basement. What do you think? And I'm like, um, I don't know, I'll come over. So then I cycle over and meet them in the supermarket by that point, they're like, "Yeah, you can all stay in the basement." You know, and we might be able to do something. The kids are like, "No, no, no, no." We're like, "Yes, great, okay." So we no. cycle to this this family's house. Six, four, you know, six of us, four kids, panniers, tents, soaking wet. They bring us in. Okay. It. What happens is then they kind of go. Actually, some of you can stay in the basement. We've got a spare room, Indiana. You can stay there. phil and Sarah, you can stay there. We have the evening with us. We have dinner with them. We spend the night in their house. We have breakfast with them. <laughs> they end up being people who used to go to a church but had kind of fallen out of church. They were just utterly amazing. And we had this 24 hours in their house and then we cycled off and our kids were like, you're crazy, but that was quite fun. <laughs> now, I tell this story, partly because it's a good story, but mainly because we got completely stuck. We had no solution, okay? And then, and then, born out of a very uncomfortable situation was something really remarkable. <laughs> okay, And sometimes we only we ask for help when we go through very uncomfortable situations where we come to a point where we realize I do not have all the solutions. Or if you're married, we don't have all the solutions. Or if you're in a family, together we, don't, we can't fix everything. And at the heart of the gospel is a realization and an acknowledgement that we do not have all the solutions and we are not made to have all the solutions to our life. Now the key problem in the midst of that is this little word called pride. And pride is a problem for two fronts. Pride is a problem because pride is the very thing that inspires and provokes our sinfulness. I think I'll do life my own way and I'll make up my own rules. Thank you, God. And I'll decide what is good and what isn't good and what is sinful and what's not, that's called pride, that's what happens with Adam and Eve and that's what happens with us. But pride is also a problem because pride wants to stop us from admitting we need help, right? But right at the heart of the gospel is an acknowledgement that we need help, that we don't have all the answers, that we were not made for ourselves, Right at the heart of the gospel is an acknowledgement that ultimately I cannot fix all my own stuff. But also right at the heart of the gospel is a revelation that there is one who doesn't slumber or sleep, who watches over me, who is absolutely willing and inclined to want to intervene on my behalf and your behalf. So, As we close, I want to suggest a couple of things. First one is something I want you to do today. And the second is something I want you to do this week, okay? First one in terms of what we do today. When we close in a little while, I want to encourage you, if you are facing a scenario where you kind of go, I don't know how this is gonna work. Like, I I can't fix this. Like, we we really need God to come through on this situation. If you are facing a situation like that, whether it's big or small, I want to encourage you to find someone and just share it with them and ask them to pray with you. And maybe you can do it vice versa. Like you can share and then the other person can share and you can just pray together. And If he's like, express to somebody else your need of, I really need God in this situation. Because sometimes it's a habit we have to build of going, God, I need you. Okay, I'm not made to do it on my own. So that's something I want you to do today. And then something I want you to do this week. I want you to take Psalm 121 just a very short little psalm and I want to say this yes, before you go to sleep at night and when you wake up in the morning I want you to read it and I want you to express to God here are the things where I need your help so when you go to bed just say God I'm putting it in your hands yeah I'm putting it in your hands as I go to sleep I'm glad that you don't go to sleep and I'm putting these concerns in your hand and I'm asking you to intervene for us or for me and in the morning, when you get up, read Psalm 121. it that be the first thing you do. Read it before you pick up your phone, okay? Read it and say to God, here are the things I need your help in this week or today. Here's the meeting I'm going to go to or here's the thing I'm dealing with. I, do, I need you. Would, you. would you intervene? And if you like, lift your eyes. Because when you do a Psalm 121, then you start to look in the right places for your help. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to use a song to close.